Almighty God, whom truly to know is everlasting life. Grant us so perfectly to know your Son, Jesus Christ, to be the way, the truth, and the life, that we may steadfastly follow his steps in the way that leads to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, the fifth Sunday of Easter, May the 15th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. It's been a, a good week. We've gotten together with friends uh, several days this week and, and enjoyed being with um, different friends. It's been nice. It's, it's been comforting to have all these people around and to be able to spend time with people that, that love us, that we love, <laughs> and who loved Will. And so it's been, you know, we're, we're still recovering and still trying to get um, get our lives figured out. It's odd, certainly, after 29 years for just us to be alone in the house. And uh, it's, you know, we, we still are getting um, messages, the best way I know to say it, <clears throat> from the Lord to comfort us and to strengthen us in, in our lives and, and to, to assure us of will's eternal salvation and so we're we're you know happy for that um really blessed so anyway we other than that it's sort of getting summer we got the our garden planted and which not much we i I cut it down to about a third the size that it's been in the past we just don't seem to have the time that we (laughs) that i had before and it's fine um planted a bunch of tomatoes and a bunch of peppers some kale some spinach stuff like that not a whole lot but uh, anyway it's been kind of a good week Um, not a whole lot going on in our lives I guess I mean like I said we had several things where we got together with friends and did things so that's that's a good thing but anyway with this week um, this fifth Sunday of Easter the lessons are um, what what I'm hearing in these things is is that that one of the things I think that we do is is when Jesus gives us a commandment like to love one another. We tend to to limit that. <laughs> we limit that to the people who are in our church, the people who are you know whatever in in some sort of relationship with us. And I think that we need sort of at some level to get a bigger picture of the kingdom of God. We need a, a larger picture and image of that. One of the things that's been kind of beneficial to me, frankly, in, in not pastoring a church for the last few years has been that I can um, get together with different Christian friends from different denominations and things and sort of see um, a bigger picture of the kingdom of God in a way that, that can get very limited when you're in a denomination, and you know, especially in, in any kind of a clergy leadership role. You tend to get... Um, into your own little cul-de-sac, and then you tend to fight the internecine battles within that, and then you, you forget about the larger, wider church. And so, we've we've been with a bunch of people for this week from from a variety of backgrounds, and it's been really nice to be um, with them. But we've also spoken to a lot of people over the last week or so who are, who are having difficulty finding a church for one reason or another. Um, some of some of the time it's because churches have gotten so woke that that they no longer believe Jesus to be the way the the truth and the life and so we take on all the social social justice uh, mantras and forget 
that we're all intended to be one. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, all that, that Paul spoke about. And, and what we miss, I think, in that is, is that we, we lose the sense of unity that we're intended to have within the body of Christ. And when I say the body of Christ, I don't mean the local expression where you spend time on Sundays. I mean the larger, wider body of Christ. And, and we have to be aware of who fits within the context of that larger body of Christ. And, and, and God's always opening new doors and bringing new people in. And I don't remember, maybe, I don't know, more than 15 years ago, because we moved here, at, well, it was more than 18 years ago, actually, because we've been here that long. So probably 20 years ago. <laughs> When I was at Pauley's Island, I had a friend who was pastoring a church up in North Carolina, and he was going to be out of town, and he needed somebody to come and take his service for him, and I had done the service there once before, before he ever came, actually. I went up on a Sunday and did a service for the people, and um, everybody was my friend. They all came around, and they had us for dinner the night before. I guess it was just me, maybe, and then to lunch the next day, and, you know, we, we were all best buds. And then this time I went up and my buddy asked me, he said, what do you want to preach? And I said, oh, I don't have anything in mind. Um, I'll just use the lectionary. Well, it happened that that Sunday, the lectionary was about the call of Matthew, um, the tax collector, to be a disciple of Jesus. And that decision, it certainly had the possibility of, of really throwing a monkey wrench into the, um, into the disciples because here you get a guy who's from a despised class of people, and Jesus is bringing him into the inner circle. You know, it would have been okay if he had gotten uh, saved and just stayed out there, but Jesus brings him in, and what does he do? Matthew immediately has a party at his house and invites his tax collector buddies. And so the Pharisees come, and they're asking the disciples, why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? And they they asked the disciples that because I'm sure that question was on their mind as well. And so so what I was talking about was is that a lot of people get in, come to the Anglican world, the Episcopal world, whatever, come into that world sort of if for, for social climbing reasons sometimes. You get to hang out with a better class of people in many places. And, and so it's funny, though, because um, so what I said was is that, you know, a lot of us— uh, a lot of people came into this denomination for these kinds of reasons, and, and it's not necessarily—I don't mean it the way it sounded, but um, but one of the things when we were sent out to plant churches by the AMIA was we were supposed to reach everybody. We were sent by Rwandese uh, and by people from Southeast Asia, and so we, we were sent out to reach the lost. That our goal shouldn't have ever been to get Episcopalians who were disaffected from their denomination and come over to us. That that you know, maybe that's a byproduct of what we were doing. But but the intention was to reach the lost. And so what I said was is that that you know sometimes it can get messy when you're bringing in lost people, and and they don't look like us and they don't act like us and they don't have the same manners we do. And it was. Afterwards, one couple took me to lunch, and I thought, well, that's odd. Nobody was particularly friendly either. So I got there, and they said, did you notice that uh, we're the only people here today, and, and last time everybody was here? I said, yeah, I most certainly did notice that. What's going on? They said, well, everybody thinks that the the other guy put you up to this, is what you're talking about. And they said, well, he, um, he's he been bringing in some people that, that uh, are less desirable, let's say. 
and everybody's kind of grumpy about that, and they just assume that you brought this message today in order to, to sort of challenge us for him. I said, nope, I just preached the lectionary. I have no idea what's going on here. Never, never asked a single question of him what was going on, but stepped into a hornet's nest and didn't have a single regret about it. So here, when we get in this Acts passage, so last week we saw Peter go to Joppa and, and raise uh, Tabitha slash Dorcas from the dead. And then what we missed was the next thing that happens, and that is he goes to Cornelius's house. He's going to tell us the story, though, here in this. So <clears throat> now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, this is before Paul really begins his ministry to the Gentiles. And so here Peter has gone, and the, the, the people who were the circumcision party are the people who made Paul's life pretty miserable most of the time. They, um, they were what we also know as the Judaizers. They wanted these people to become Jewish, and, and the way to, that, that they believed to get into this covenant was through circumcision. And so they, they want to demand that, and they want to know, Peter, what were you doing that you went up and ate with these unclean, uncircumcised people? You're compromised, Peter, and, and have you compromised the message? Have you compromised the truth here? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, because he remained in Joppa after the raising of uh, Tabitha from the dead. He, he remained in Joppa at the home of Simon the Tanner. He says, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is also called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you'll be saved, you and all your household." So that's the story of how Peter ends up in Caesarea at the home of Cornelius, the Roman centurion. So that, that's, his, that's the story. I mean, it's as simple as that. It, we, it's told in Acts 10. This is in 11. Peter's retelling the story. And this, here are the details of how I ended up with these uncircumcised men and ate with them. The Spirit told me to do it, and I connected the Spirit telling me to go and kill and eat with these men coming from Caesarea and, and telling me to come with them because the Spirit in that vision told me that these men were coming and I was to go with them, and so I did. So he, he said the Spirit had told them to call for me, and that, that when I came, I'd have a message by which they might be saved, you and all your household. Now, Cornelius was, is described in Acts 10 as a God-fearer. In other words, what, what the situation is here is that he believes in uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not a full proselyte because he hasn't 
gone the whole way and, and accepted circumcision to get into the covenant. So he's a God-fearer, though, so that means that, that he is worshiping the same God. He just hasn't taken that step of circumcision to come into that Jewish community. And so Peter comes and, and gives him, them, his whole household, this message of salvation in Jesus Christ. And then he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And what, what happened was they began to speak in tongues. Peter says, just like happened to us on the day of Pentecost. So the same thing, when I began to speak, the Spirit fell on them just as it was on us at the beginning. Now, this had happened one other place, too, even before this happens. Because after the persecution breaks out, after the stoning of Stephen, the persecution in Jerusalem breaks out. And everybody except the, the apostles leave Jerusalem and the deacon, Philip, we know he's the deacon and not the apostle for one simple reason. It, we're told the apostles all stayed. So it's this deacon, Philip, who goes out, and he goes to Samaria, preaches the gospel there, and they believe. And then what does he do? Well, he says, well, we got to get some apostles out here. So he calls and says, hey, can you all come out to Samaria real quick? I need you to see something. And they come out, and they lay hands on these people and pray for them, and they begin to speak in tongues. So the sign that, that was given to the apostles on the day of Pentecost then becomes the sign that's given it to these Samaria, Samaritans whom Philip has evangelized. And then here we see it again in Caesarea with these Gentiles. Now, the Samaritans were close kinsmen of the Jews. In fact, they were, they were part of Judaism, but they were a group, a sect, who remained apart and, and they would not accept Jerusalem as the place God chose. They thought that these guys had become heretics over the years. They didn't have the prophets. They didn't have anything after the first five books of Moses. So when Jesus goes out there and speaks to them, there's a lot of enmity between them and the Jews. And so when Jesus goes into Samaria and, and speaks to the woman at the well in Samaria, then then he brings the gospel to them, and he brings it in a unique way because he tells the woman, you worship, you know not what? Salvation comes from the Jews. It's an enormous challenge to her to say that because he's saying that you've got it all wrong. Everything you believe is not true, and the Jews actually are the ones that have it right, the ones you think are the heretics. And so he then, though, converts the town. So I wonder if Philip had gone to the same village to tell them the rest of the story about what happened with Jesus, about the resurrection, the crucifixion, the resurrection. And so I wonder if that's the case, but the same thing happened there. When the Spirit fell, they began to speak in tongues. Well, they were close kinsmen, so they could people could live with that because the Samaritans accepted um, circumcision. Now, this guy, Cornelius, was just a proselyte. He had not made that next step. And we're told in Acts 2 that the, the people that were there in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost were told they were Jews from all over the place. And so here, this is a brand new thing. This is the first move out to the Gentiles, but it goes to somebody who's already prepared to receive the good news. It's somebody who has been searching. And now Peter sent to them to give the gospel message. And Peter says, when I began to speak, this happened. He said, I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? In other words, God had already done the work. All I could do was baptize it. 
you know, I, all I could do is bear witness to the fact that, that these guys had been filled with the Holy Spirit. And if God had done that, who was I to get in the way of that? <clears throat> he says, when they heard these things, they fell silent. So these, this circumcision party, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, did that mean that they were done insisting on converts being uh, circumcised? No, it did not. That, that really never ended in the early church, um, even though in Acts 15, the, the Jerusalem council led by James um, makes the decision that, th- that circumcision is not to be laid on to the Gentile converts because it's too great a burden. And nobody had ever been able to bear it except Jesus anyway. So we're not going to lay the law on them. And, and so they, they say only a few things you have to do. Abstain from meat, sacrifice to idols. Don't eat anything with the blood in it, anything strangled or with the blood still in it. Or, uh, and also stay away from sexual immorality. There were sexual ethics that defined God's people. And so when they, when they were going to Gentiles, they had to tell them that there's a, there's a different sexual ethic in the church. And so those are the things that were laid on those Gentile converts. So, like I said, this, this controversy hasn't been dealt with yet. It's certainly not been complete. We know that Paul, for instance, is accused of, of taking uncircumcised Gentiles into the temple, and that's why he's in trouble. And, and he's constantly having to fight with the Jewish communities wherever he is because they're insisting on circumcision. But then there are others who will come in after Paul's done the missionary work. There are other... Christians who will come in and and begin to share a message that requires circumcision of converts. Now, God brings in people the way he brings in people. He brought people in through the new covenant in Jesus's blood, which is exactly what Jesus said were the signs of the new covenant. It it was, was eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And so we, we come in that way. And it's, it's important that we understand that God makes a way for us all to come into the covenant, but that that the way is Jesus, period, end of sentence. So to the extent that you bear witness to Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by him. So he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, then, then we're brothers and sisters. But there's a mark of a Christian, too. It's not just in our confession, there's also life, and that life needs to bear witness to what you say you believe. And when Jesus, after they had gone out the night after the Last Supper, Jesus has, has told them to serve one another. He's, he's given them all kinds of instructions. And then when, they, when he had gone out, he, being Judas, who Jesus had sent out to do uh, what he had to do, which we know was to betray him. The disciples didn't know that. They didn't know if it was to get something else for the feast or if it was to go give money to the poor because that's one of the things you do during the feasts is you do acts of charity and good works. And those enhance your celebration of the festival. And so that's what they thought that he was doing. Jesus meant, no, go and do what you have to do and do it quickly. And so when he had gone out refers to Judas going out to betray Jesus. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Now he's already said this once. He said it when the Greeks came and asked Philip if they could see Jesus. 
And when he hears that, when he hears these these people from all over the world are now searching for him, Jesus says, now has the time come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Here he says, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. So the process is beginning now. And it's going to begin with the betrayal, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, and the resurrection, and then ultimately the ascension. He says, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So if he brings glory to God, then God will glorify him and will do it at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You'll seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, he had told them this once before about, we'd said, in my father's room there are many mansions. If it were not so, would I not have told you? And so that language of where he's going is to prepare a place for us is um, language of the bridegroom. Because that was the bridegroom's job. So when you when you read the parables where he talks about weddings, for instance, so there's a two-part sort of thing. It says, okay, save the date, but it's really save a time period. <laughs> because the, the once the, the uh, nuptials have been announced, the groom has a job to do, and that's to go and prepare a place for the bride. And that place is in his father's house. It's adding a room onto the home of his father. And so when that's finished and the work is acceptable to the father, then the wedding can happen, but not until. So there's not a date certain. There's a basic time frame that says keep the date, and we'll give you more information as we go along. And so that's why you see these people who had agreed to come to weddings, then, then they receive invitations in some Jesus' parables, and they say, no, I got things to do. That They've already RSVP'd, and now when the time comes, they're not willing to come. And so they have other things that are more important. And so when Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot come, that's what he's talking about, is that he is going away to do the work of the bridegroom to prepare a place in the Father. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus is building houses. I, I, one of my Greek and New Testament professors, we asked him one time what was the like most cringeworthy sermon he'd ever heard. And he said that he heard a guy one time preaching and saying that um, the reason Jesus was a carpenter on earth was so he'd know how to build these mansions in heaven and he's busily building these mansions in heaven and it's like ugh, that's embarrassing but but that's what jesus has done he's gone to prepare a place for us in the father and he is being glorified and we see the ultimate glorification of jesus in revelation 5 when the lamb looking like it was slain appears before the throne and then receives all the praise of heaven when he takes the scroll from the one seated on the throne. So that's the ultimate glorification, and we will see him glorified um, at the end of time when every knee will bow and recognize that he alone is the Christ. That Revelation 5 passage also points to the uniqueness of Jesus because what it says about the one seated on the throne holding the scrolls of judgment, it says that there was no one found in heaven or on earth or under the earth, who was worthy to take the scrolls until the lamb looking like it was slain appears before the throne. I believe that's the, the, the heaven's version of the ascension. They saw him going in the clouds. John tells us in, in Revelation 5 what happens once he gets up 
to heaven. And so the glorification in heaven happens then. The glorification in all realms and spheres will wait until the end of all things. So Jesus says, look, you're not going to be able to get there either. I'm telling you the same thing I'm telling everybody else, but it's time for that glorification. And then the final thing that he needs to tell them, the final commandment that he gives them is this, love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. One of the you know, it's difficult, obviously, as losing Will has been. One of the great things is this legacy that he left behind is just that um, incredible miracle that happened a year ago. Um, and that miracle brought us together with other brothers and sisters literally all over the world. I got a wonderful message today, from, or yesterday actually, from a woman in Uganda who I've gotten to be very close to. Even though we've never met, we talk all the time by uh, Facebook Messenger. And we've gotten very close. And the, she had a baby recently, and I, I asked how the baby was doing. And so she sent me a picture and said, our good friend John Green, here is your granddaughter. And that blessed me beyond belief. And it's true. It's the way that we should be thinking about one another. It's absolutely true. As soon as we can get uh, time and, and everything, I want to go. And I want to go meet my granddaughter. I'm excited about that. But, it, but it's, it's shown us a broader image and picture of the body of Christ because people from so many different walks of life and so many different parts of the body of Christ have come around us and loved us as brothers and sisters in Christ through all of this. And that's exciting to see that love across those denominational and, other, and country lines and everything else. And, and it's wonderful. It was one of the greatest things about the AMIA was just that, that the, the, the connections we formed with the people in Southeast Asia and the people in Rwanda were real and true. That we wasn't just, you know, this is our oversight. No, these were real connections. Uh, I got to spend enormous amounts of time in Rwanda and then also with Rwandese when they came to the States for different things. And, and what a blessing it was. And so when we see in Revelation, we see those people from every tribe and language and nation, then, then we greet one another's brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world. We, we are part of this incredible worldwide fellowship, but it's not just a worldwide fellowship. It also cuts across space and time in the same way that the writer of Hebrews points to about that great cloud of witnesses that surround us. You know, we need to be accustomed to and good with the fact that God's kingdom, that everybody doesn't look like me. They, they look like all kinds of different things. You know, and, and it's been such a blessing to me to, to be around so many Christians of different denominations and different styles of worship and everything else over the last period of time. And it's blessed us dramatically and opened our eyes more to, to the diversity in every single way. I don't mean just color. I mean, in every single way, the diversity of the kingdom of God. Right. And so I wouldn't reach everybody. Because the way I preach and the way I teach and all that kind of stuff, it's just not going to appeal to everybody. But there are people that, that I can speak to and that I can hear, and there are the people that I can listen to and receive from. And, and, it's, and then there's other people who receive from different kinds of preachers and teachers. And it's, it's exciting to me to see that diversity and to celebrate that diversity that, that we need. If we're going to reach the world, then we need diversity. 
we, we need to be different. We need to look different. We need to dress different. Everybody doesn't need to wear skinny jeans. Um, and well, I can't. So, but it, but it's this diversity and the love that we have for one another and respect that we have for one another. When we preach and teach truly the word of God, not when we water it down, not when we do other things with it and adulterate it in any way. No, I love to listen to anybody who's truly preaching the Word of God. In the Revelation passage, this most beautiful passage, you know, one of the things that, that when they did the, um, the Living Bible, when they did that initially, uh, one of the biggest problems was is that they, the salvation event was sort of summed up in getting to heaven. Well, that's a temporary thing. Let's start there. You don't spend eternity in heaven. You're getting ready to see where you are going to spend eternity. You'll be there until you come here, back here, to the new heavens and the new earth. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. If you think about the wilderness, um, when, when the people were in the wilderness and they saw the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, that was signified God's presence among them. The safety of seeing that pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, the, the comfort that that would have been, would it be absolutely remarkable? And Jesus promised us that he would be with us to the end of the age. He promises the Holy Spirit as dwells in us now. And here it says, the dwelling place of God is with man. And that, that was never the case because the way that the, the world was created, right, was there's a separation between God's dwelling place and man's dwelling place. And in that, he carved out a garden. And that garden was the place where God could come and meet with his people. And so he would be there until sin entered the world, and then God had to distance himself. And then in search of a people, finally creates something new. And there's a tabernacle, there's a little place in the midst of God's people where God can be. There's a holy place that's set apart for him and his presence. And so he dwells in that tabernacle. And then what does he do? Right? He moves the people into a new garden the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He moves them there so that he can dwell among them again. And then, well, that goes badly, as we know. And so then he comes in the form of Jesus, and we won't have any of it. We will not tolerate him in our midst. We we crucify him. So what's required then is this world has fallen so far from God's intended purpose for it, that a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem are required required so that God can dwell among men. And so that's what he does. He brings a new city down out of heaven and says he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Interesting, they've passed away. We use that same euphemism for dying. And he's already said there that the, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. 
And now he says the former things have passed away, not just the physical heaven and earth. No, the former things. What he's talking about there is death, mourning, crying, and pain, all that. All that stuff we brought into the world and wrecked it as a habitation for God and made it far less hospitable than it was intended to be, even for us. He says those things have all passed away. And a new heaven and a new earth are here. And God can dwell among his people. Not just come visit, but dwell among his people. It's a what a, what a wonderful thing that is. And as I said at the funeral, that we all know <laughs> this world isn't right. Every creation story takes that as its beginning point. Is, is that, you know, if we did this, if I created a world, it wouldn't be like this. A lot of this stuff would never happen if I created the world. And well, God didn't have any intention of that either. We brought that mess into the world. The other creation stories that you find will tell you the story of, well, the gods are really messed up. And so their pathologies end up becoming pathologies down here. But, it, but everybody takes seriously the idea that this world is, is messed up. And the only question is, how did it get so? And almost well, every other um, uh, creation story will will tell you that it's because of the gods, one way or another. It's because of the gods themselves. The Judeo-Christian story says, nope, nope, God created it perfectly. He brought uh, order out of chaos, and then what happens next is we, human beings, bring chaos to that order. And so we're responsible for the chaos, not God. So it makes no sense to ask God why. These things happen. It, it, I mean, I understand why you want to know those things, but the reality is is that his answer to Job was, it, that's such a big answer, and it's connected with everything that's ever happened since the creation of the world, Job. So there's not really any way, unless you sit in my seat, that you can understand the answer to why. It's way more complicated than you could ever imagine. Just believe me that ultimately there's justice. There's justice. And the world that you believe should be, will be. And that's what the, the resurrection tells us, is, is that in this world, this world can crucify the only righteous man who ever lived, but he's going to bring about the next world. He's going to bring about justice because he's resurrected from the dead. And then after that, he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said also, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. That work's already done. John's already seen it. And those things, God's world of time is different from our world of time. We experience it in a linear kind of a way. God has all times and all places. And so when he says it is done, that sounds a whole lot like Jesus' statement from the cross, it is finished. So God says that work's already done. It's just waiting for the right time to manifest. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. And Jesus offers that to the woman at the well. Isaiah 55 says, come, buy wine and milk without price. And, and it's ultimately, everything is about the grace of God. It's all about the grace of God. And, and by the grace of God, all languages, nations, tribes, races, and peoples will be there. And what a glorious thing it will be to see 
the fullness of the expression of God's kingdom in every single stripe, every single color, every single variety of person on earth. People that I don't even pay attention to sometimes probably uh, that I overlook in this life will be some of the most prominent people in the kingdom of God. And so it's incumbent upon us, I believe, to truly seek to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because I do believe that's the way the world will know who we are. And, and, And let's get a head start on that by doing it now.